we say, praise you, praise you, praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Are we still in the morning? Can I get a whoop, whoop? I appreciate you guys helping me out. There are many people out there, or at least we hope they are, that are watching, and we need to at least that, let them know there's somebody here. And so um, it's been nice to at least have some people, because in the last uh, 16 weeks, we've only had probably four or five people. So it's been good uh, to see you guys here, and especially today. So... Um, in recent weeks, we've been talking about, um, you know, the, um, the subtleties of injustice and also talking about racial discrimination. And so I want to talk to you um, a little bit more about that today. And we'll continue on as I share through this sermon time as what we would like to do moving forward as a church. 2018, uh, there was an M NF NFC championship game uh, between the L.A. Rams and the New Orleans Saints. Um, there was a controversial call uh, that happened towards the end of the game. When you saw it live and you saw there was a defender from the Rams covering a receiver from the Saints, and as the play was being broken up from an angle, it looked as though the defender broke up the play. So it was kind of one of those cross angles that you could see it happen. And now the rule in NFL is that you, as a coach, cannot challenge the play if it's two minutes or less in the game or each half. So this was around a minute 45. And what was happening was when we saw it live, again, it was just, it saw like it was broken up until in the booth, they were able to just review the play and realize that the defensive back from the Rams clearly had pass interference on the receiver. And so it caused a controversy. I mean, the fans, the players, the coach. And after the game was over, even between the time when the Rams won the game and were ready to prepare for Super Bowl those two weeks, it was controversial, as you can remember, for two weeks or so where people were just in an uproar about what happened. It's not fair what happened. This is injustice. I mean, it's as though they were claiming that. They were chanting injustice. Because what had happened was, if the Saints would have gotten that play, it was a pass interference, it would have been an automatic first down, been closer to the goal line, they were only within 15 yards, they would have potentially scored, and the game would have been over at the time. But what happened was, the Rams turned it around, and I'm an avid fan, I'm a Rams fan, so they turned it around, marched down the field, and the kicker kicked a 48-yard field goal. Now, the Saints fairly could have, you know, in all fairness, they could have won the game, but they didn't. But then they went into overtime, and the Rams happened to bring their kicker out again to kick a 57-yard field goal, which doesn't often happen. So they won the game. But here's what Sean Payton, the head coach of the New Orleans Saints, said. He goes, when he stated, because he was careful, he didn't want 
um, to be fined by the league. He said, this is not okay. The coach saying, request an anonymity for the fear of being fined by the league. We lose our jobs over things like this. I've never seen a penalty that blatant that was, wasn't called. And I'm not being biased. The guy was there seconds before the ball. And on top of that, that there was a helmet-to-helmet contact. It just is a shame that it had to end like that. And see, here he could have clearly been chanting injustice, injustice. And it was controversial. And so the complaint continued to rise up. And as it arose, about seven, eight months later, the rule was changed. Because they looked at it. And they realized it was. It was wrong that a team lost the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl over that. So they changed it. They investigated. They listened to the pleas of each person. People spoke up. Complaints arose, even got a little hostile. And yet the rule was changed. They considered it. So as we talk about this whole situation... What were they looking for? In a game, when you're playing any kind of sports game, you have boundaries, you have rules, you have refs to keep it a fair game. If one team has an advantage over another, it's not fair. It's not the level playing field. And so they looked at it and realized and investigated and realized, yes, it was unfair. And as we think about it, what if... The Saints would have won the game. Would they chant injustice or just glad that they won the game? See, I don't think it mattered whether they won the game or not. It was wrong. They should have changed the rule, and they did. But sometimes things go wrong, and the, the crowd begins to rise with their complaints. And at that point... No matter what, listening has to happen, investigation has to happen. We have to look at all of these situations. Well, how do we look at that when we think about justice and biblical justice as we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks? We've been talking about how God loves justice and righteousness. See, we live under a theocratic government. If you bear the name of Jesus Christ and call yourself Christian, you are under a theocratic government before you're under a democratic government. You are under the theocracy of God and you know that he is the king and that his son is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And we hold under that gird, girding of saying that he is our king. And so when we live under that, we have to recognize that that's what we're called to. But what we do when we're under that, we have to understand that God loves justice, God loves righteousness. He has given us righteousness through his son. We didn't deserve it, never will. But we bear the name of Christ, we hold the name of righteousness because of Jesus. If we would receive our due justice, then we would be going to hell. But instead, we have received the mercy and grace of God. And it had nothing to do with how good we are or not. In fact, it's the opposite. We're never going to be good enough. But God still desires to bring forth justice. See, that's why I believe biblical justice matters. When it comes down to it, because when biblical justice matters, then lives are valued and respected. When biblical justice matters, that means if someone's mistreated, we have to understand there's equality that's at stake. 
we got to understand with God, God is just. That's the, that's the persona. That's who he is, is his attribute. But God's law and judgments are just and righteous and applied without partiality. So no one has an advantage. Everyone's on an equal playing field. When we deal with God's justice, we are equal in the sight of God, and we should be in the sight of man. If someone has an advantage over someone else, we need to investigate that, listen, and find out why do they. Because if we stand and bear the name of Jesus, we got to stand for justice and not try to defend anything else. That is a passion of mine because the Bible says it. It has nothing to do with a personal feeling or a personal thing that I feel. It's the Bible that says it. The justice is a biblical term, and we cannot allow the outside influences to change that or influence us. That's why it's important for us to understand if it's a biblical term, then we need to understand it's not the outside working in that determines why we stand for justice. It's the inside working in, and the church must be the ones that hold biblical justice and apply it appropriately. You know, when I've been reading and studying, and there's a book out, Oneness Embraced by Tony Evans. I would encourage you to read it. If you're wondering about, this is a great, great book. It's a book that will help you understand about racial discrimination, about the initial point of it, but also generous justice from Tim Keller is a great book to start off in this discussion. But Tony Evans uh, says this, that when, when you hear the chants of no justice, no peace, Equally balancing the fact, this is an African-American saying this, a, a prophylic um, uh, leader in our, in, our, in our society would say this, though. Equally, it has to be no forgiveness, no peace. So the one who's being mistreated has to also, in Christ, in the body of Christ, has to be willing to forgive those who mistreat them. It's a balancing of the scales. It's what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to forgive. So we have to chant no justice, no peace, but we must chant no forgiveness, no peace. Because reconciliation, the building of bridges, the coming together and unified together for one cause, one voice is what's going to carry us moving forward for the kingdom of God. We have to be unified as a body of Christ. So you may ask the question, Bruno, is there an example in the church that gives us where the church must do all they can to deal with injustice and not look to the outside sources, but look inside in. Yes, I will tell you, you asked me that question, I'll give you an answer. Yes, I think in the book of Acts, chapter 6, it gives us a great example. So I want to give you some principles for church, for the church that it resolved, not only racial injustice, but justice as a whole. So we'll see this model. Number one, as we look at this, we have to say, there are no problems, just solutions to the problems. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 6, we have to set up a background as we read this scripture. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So let me just give you a little bit of background with the book of Acts. The church was inaugurated through the Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the agent 
through that book. Jesus Christ ascends to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And we know John 16, 7, he said, I must leave that the Spirit must come. And there where the Spirit comes, he indwells in the believer permanently, and he's indwelling. And so now as he's indwelling in the believer, and we are a diverse people, he shows forth in chapter 2, Luke writes, that there is a diverse people, a people of all ethnicities, of groups of people that come to see that the Spirit of the living God is falling upon the so-called church that's about to inaugurate. Peter then preaches the word of God, the message of the gospel, and many come to faith. At the end of the chapter, chapter 2, we see that many were added to the church, to the number. As Luke continues in writing in chapters 2 through 6, he comments often on the message of the gospel, the need to repent, the trusting in Christ for salvation, and then more are added to the church because they trust in the gospel. And as this continued, and so did the church of Jerusalem began to grow, primarily with Jews. However, there were others that were attending the gatherings. And in chapter 6, we see there's a group called the Hellenists that were Greek-speaking Jews. And as Greek-speaking Jews, it's something like an Italian coming from Italy to America and speaking American and English and then learning the customs of being an American. So he or she would not know as a true Italian from Italy uh, or a nationalist, we would call from a, a state or country to say that, hey, um, you're not really like one of us because you've adapted another culture and another speaking language. The Hellenists did that. They became Greek in influence and culture and customs and traditions and mindsets, and they were distant from their nationalist Jewish culture. And then you have the Hebrews. They were nationalists. They were treated with privilege. They're, this was their territory. They were the majority. They lived in their own customs and traditions. The church initiated in, in the Jewish culture. And as a primary focus on the Hebrews, it was natural for the leaders of the church to focus on catering on their own. It's possible that they noticed or recognized the Hellenists, but they gravitated toward their own. So if the Hellenists didn't speak up, what would have happened? Would the problem be known to the Jewish leaders? What if they remained silent and just said, just preach the word of God and have prayer meetings, and this will solve the problem? But a complaint arose. We would see it likened today to a peaceful protest with the church leaders. The word complaint means an utterance made in a low-toned voice, behind-the-scenes talk, complaints that are made to someone or something Grumbling and complaining. So we see that they made a complaint because the widows were not being taken care of. You understand about the widow. The widow is in a position where she can't get out of it. Her husband has passed away, died. She's alone. She's needy. She's dependent. In the Old Testament, it, it was one of the peoples that were identified that needed charitable deeds being ministered to. Them and orphans. The Hellenistic widows were a large group. The, 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 the diaspora of Jews often returned to Jerusalem in their late years to die in the holy city, the homeland. So when the husbands died, their widows left them with needs to be met. So the Jewish temple would only receive their own. They would not receive a Hellenist because they were not Hebraic Jews, the nationalists. So if they would go and try to receive something, it would be a Jew would be receiving if they were a widow, and they would be receiving a weekly 
need called a kupa. It was given out every Friday and consisted of enough money for 14 meals. It was also daily distribution known as the temhu. It was for non-residents and transients and consisted of food and drink, which delivered from house to house where needy were dwelling. But the Christian practice seemed to embrace this idea of helping out. Let me share why being neglected was important to understand in this process. See, they were neglecting, they were leaving them out, they were overlooking them when they should have not done that. Why? Because when we see in Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45, I want to read a couple verses to you what was happening during this time. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4, 32 through 35 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were one of heart and soul, and no one said that any of their things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the gospel, and the great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Now this is important. What it's saying is the church was taking care of injustice. They were meeting the needs of the poor, meeting the needs of the widow, meeting the needs of the orphans, meeting the needs of the defenseless, meeting the needs of the fatherless. They were taking care of it. They weren't looking for their outside sources and trying to bring it in. They weren't looking for the media to determine what they should do about justice. They weren't looking for the media to determine who they are in Jesus Christ. The church, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a sufficient amount enough of information and the spirit of the living God to get us to do what we should do, and that's called justice. And if we have justice, we need to follow up with justice, not just be lip service, but do something about it. But we fail. Do I beat myself up over it? No. But I'm burdened over it right now. I'm sincerely burdened over this. Not just the racial discrimination, but because we, the church, must be the church. And we have to stand because they were doing it. They were standing, meeting the needs of others, giving up their own homes, selling them, and placing them at the apostles' feet. Oh, to see a church say that their stuff is not their own. We need to come together and realize that justice needs to occur. When there's injustice in our context, we can do a couple of things. And I mentioned this before. We could react. We could respond. We could defend. We can dominate the conversation. We can deflect or dismiss. But that's not going to happen for the church to move forward. We'll never move forward because when we do that, we allow the problem to linger. Whenever we don't deal with the problem, there's no solution. So that's why there's no problems, just solutions to a problem. If we continue this behavior, we'll never see the solution that the church must be the ones who deal with injustice. And so we have to decide, as a people of God, are we going to listen? Are we going to learn? Are we, we don't have to always agree, but can we listen? Because by when we listen, we show value, we show respect, we show love to a person. And that's the Imagu Day, because God created them, and we want to do that. In the past couple of weeks, that's been my vision, simply to get us to listen to our brothers and sisters 
You don't have to agree. But by doing so, it gives us a chance to move towards a solution rather than continually sit in the problem. And the solution is healing and reconciliation. But in order for that to happen, you have, have to have uncomfortable discussions, uncomfortable moments, uncomfortable incidents, sometimes to get to the place of healing and reconciliation. You know the healing process, whenever you have a wound, you have to get directly to the wound for it to heal. Well, let me tell you, let me ask you a question. Does it feel good when you have to deal with an open wound, when you have to put medicine in it? Does it, Deb? It doesn't, right? It doesn't. It hurts like nobody's business. And I'll tell you something, but when it hurts, that means it's healing. But if we keep dismissing, deflecting, dominating, defending, we'll never get it hurt. If you keep saying, no, doctor, I don't need it. No, 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 don't open up my wound. I'm good, I'm good. In order for healing to happen, you got to do surgery. You got to get in the wound. Amen? Amen. So it doesn't have any difference in what we're doing here. In order for reconciliation and healing to happen, we've got to deal with the wounds. I'm not bringing those wounds on, by the way. Those wounds are already there. You got to bring them to God to heal. You got to bring them to God so he can reconcile the church. We can't do, I don't care about what the world's doing right now until I care about what the church is doing right now. As a pastor, I'm concerned about the church. And that's what we have to be considering. I want you to just, for me, just for a moment, as we've had our panel last week, I have about three or four more minutes. I wanted you guys to hear Pastor Clark's response and to listen. And afterwards, I'll share a little bit about what that's going to, to entail. Let me just share. Okay, so now we're at our, our last question here. Statistically, black-on-black -black crime is higher than white-on-black -black crime. Statistically. How do you feel when a person brings this up in a rebuttal to the discussion? Black-on-black -black crime, whatever you call it, is an issue. And it is something that saddens me, burdens my heart. Uh, from the time I can remember when my son was born, Understanding that he has a greater chance of being killed by another black person, that burdened my heart. And we've got to do a better job of addressing that. I agree. Here's the issue is, but there are multiple factors as to why that is. It's like pill and linen. We have a lot of different reasons for that. It's not, it's not just simple. And that needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed better. But I think when we're talking about the issue we're talking about, when somebody deflects that, it's, it's almost like saying, if, if, I come, if I talk to someone and I say to them, uh, maybe there's, there's a husband who's abusing his wife, and we address the fact that he's abusing his wife, and what he says is, well, George down the street abuses his wife every week. So what he's, 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 he's deflecting his issue. And so the issue is really not, the, the issue we're talking about today is not black on black crime. That's an issue. Yes. But we're talking about... Um, profiling and, and how African Americans are handling this kind of situation. And I think we have to go back to, we've got to go back to our history. And this is where you understand. In the court system, when a black person kills a black person, that black person pays the penalty. And so what I'm saying, what happens is you have two mothers, in a sense, that have lost their son. Okay? It's, 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 there's a penalty that's paid. When you talk about white on black crime, oftentimes there is not a penalty. There is a light penalty 
and there is a reluctant penalty. The shooting we just saw down in Georgia with uh, uh, um, Arbery down there, right? Why did it take 75 days for them to arrest these people? Right? So oftentimes, so you have to go back to history and understand that yes, it's black on black crime, but oftentimes white on black crime, the sentences are lower, they're not, they're not paid because, it, and it goes back again to the value of the black life. When you don't value black, when you don't value black life. Black on white crime, right? Black on white crime, somebody's getting arrested. It may not even be the person who did it. There may not be any forensic evidence to show this person did, but somebody is going to jail because we value white lives are valued more than black lives. That, that's one of the issues that we got to deal with. And then it's complicated even more when you take somebody who has been given a badge and given the authority to protect and to serve. And when they commit that kind of crime, when they don't value life, any life, when they show that they don't value life and, and they profile based on stereotypes, and then they get away with it or there are little consequences and the, and, and the behavior continues, now that becomes even a greater issue. So it, it really goes down, it goes back to valuing people's lives. And, and, and the issue is, oftentimes, and some of the anchors there is, is oftentimes, African Americans don't feel that their life is valued on the same par as, as other people. So you got to listen, just for a minute here, just listen, for in your mind you might want to defend. He talked about two things, value and justice. When you have biblical justice, there's equality across the line. Everyone is equal and everyone should be valued equally. And justice, if it matters, then everybody will receive that accordingly. And that's what I believe the United States, and I think the church needs to do this, is biblical justice matters. Because we have to, here's what the Bible does say about okay, So now we're at our, our last. This is what it does. Know this, my brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, so and so it's important for us to understand there are no problems, just solutions to the problems. And we've got to listen. We can't defend, deflect, dismiss. We've got to listen. That's, that's number one. Number two. God created diversity, and we must choose unity. Now, here's what's happened here. There is an injustice. You have the widows. You have the Hellenists. But it's a racial tension here. It's not just the widow. You have two injustices here. You have racial injustice, and you have an injustice against not meeting the needs of a widow. And now you're sitting here, and you have diversity of people because you have racial um, injustice. And you have to decide as a church what to do for unity's sake. Well, here's what they did. They didn't, they didn't try to look to their party. They didn't look to Democrat, Republican, Independent. They didn't go there. What they did was the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should not give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, most or say some scholars have said over the years that, that this would be a, 
a passage that would say, well, we as apostles have to preach the word of God. The lesser job is for the deacons to take care of the table. So often they would use this passage to defend that these are deacons. But let me, let me just try to drop something differently here. I want to add to this. It is very important that they do not neglect the preaching of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it will save lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. But equally, you should never neglect biblical justice. You should not, it's equally invested. Because God created us in diversity, that's value, equality, imagu Dei, and unity says that I'm going to listen, I'm going to do whatever I can to bring forth justice here, biblical justice, so therefore in unity's sake, I, we got to solve the problem, not those outside. Meaning not the outside coming in, but us going inside out. We've got to deal with it for unity's sake. And unity doesn't mean that we are always equal in thought, like we're always thinking on the same thing or agreement of the same thing. It's when we agree on the truth, on the gospel. And the gospel tells us that we are to treat everyone equally, that we are to treat everyone because that's biblical justice, that we are to have accountability, equality, and responsibility. So biblical justice simply means this, that if someone does wrong, a black person does wrong, biblical justice. A white person does wrong, biblical justice. An Italian-American does wrong, biblical justice. An Hispanic does wrong, biblical justice. An Asian person does wrong, biblical justice. An officer does wrong, biblical justice. Nobody's above the law. If the president does wrong, biblical justice. Justice stands in every man. That's what matters. The world is still looking for it. I am not allowing them to hijack what justice is. It's a biblical term. I'm going to stick on biblical justice, and the church must as well. That's where we have to solve the problem. That's why we're talking about principles. We've got to make sure that we don't do this. We don't neglect it. We cannot neglect what God calls necessary because biblical justice is necessary. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick up from among you, seven men of good repute or reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom you will appoint to this duty. It's quite clear that what's saying here is that what's necessary is the biblical justice. But see why it was necessary, because in the Greek, the last word duty really means in need or necessary. That's the word in the Greek. This is necessary that we pick men who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the agent and he's leading these men to do the work which God wants done in this church. And in this church in Jerusalem represents what we should all be doing locally but universally is dealing with, with justice, injustice, so we can bring forth biblical justice. So the necessary end is that we've got to be led by the Spirit of God. That's why it's necessary. If the Holy Spirit placed that in there in the writings of the Scriptures, we need to follow through. We can't just preach the word of God and not do justice. Then we're just pharisaical Christians. We can't just do justice and not preach the word of God because we might as well just not become Christians and become humanists. We need to stand firm because where there is the word of God and the gospel, biblical justice must follow. It is a demonstration of our Christian theology. It is a demonstration outward of what we should be doing by taking care of the poor, taking care of the widows, taking care of the orphans, taking care of the fatherless, taking care of the defenseless. That's what God is calling to us. In 1986, Dr. Evans was just becoming well-known nationally. 
he was involved in some national movement with the United States and helping with those who were hurting and poor. And it began to uh, give him opportunity to speak up. Well, in 1986, he wanted to start a radio station that we know today is Urban Alternative. But when he did try to start it in 1986, he reached out to some of the radio stations that were primarily white Christian leaders. And their response to him was, I'm sorry, but if we place you on a radio station, our listeners will be offended. So he couldn't get through until a white man saved him. God used James Dobson to write some letters to those who were in uh, the radio station world. And what happened was, through that, God used James Dobson to get Tony Evans to start in his ministry. But he often, he said this in a, in a podcast that I listened to in the last couple of weeks. He said, individuals may have not had a problem with Tony Evans leading and teaching them as an African-American professor and pastor. Individuals may not have had the problem. But systemically, the radio station said no. See, we're not going to fight this individually. If we try to fight this personally, the wounds will come out. It'll hurt. But when we come together corporately as the church to fight against injustices, then we have a bigger voice because we're better together. We build bridges, we reconcile, we heal. God uses us as the unit that he intended for us to be. And then when we come together as a corporate unit, we can fight against, by the grace of God, systemic racism that exists even in our United States. Because ultimately, we have to ask that question. As we ask that question, we have to be challenged to understand that. And so as we look at it and we, we grasp and understand that biblical justice can only be worked on in the church when we come together collectively. Because again, it's accountability, equality, and responsibility to do justice. The next is the word of God and prayer are essential for solving problems. The word of God and prayer are essential for solving problems. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 4. For, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word of God. Now, as we understand it, now watch out. I'm going to tell you what the word devote means. Hold on to your seats. Grab on to them because this is what it means. Busy oneself with. Be enthusiastic, engaged in. Devoted to. So let me ask you some questions here. When was the last time we prayed for biblical justice as individuals and corporately? Thursday night, we got together as a church, 12 of us. We had a great time. We worshiped. We prayed. We asked God to change us. We did some self-reflection. We confessed our sin. We repented. And we asked God to bring unity in our church. Because we know unity doesn't come in just agreement and thought, but it comes in agreement with the truth. And so if we believe in biblical justice, then we know God will solve the problems if we pray. When was the last time we, should, we stood in the gap? For the defenseless, the fatherless, the widow, or the poor. You might say, yes, I've done that. That's great. We need to do that. If we're to examine our lives, are we busy, engaged in biblical justice? When we devote ourselves as a corporate church to cry out to God for biblical justice, this is the ultimate response, Christian theology. And so it's important for us to understand and grasp that to be what we call the church and to do the greatest commandment, 
we have to do this, to love the Lord our God with our soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Loving our neighbor doesn't mean that we don't do anything wrong to our neighbor, but it means if whether we're going to do intentionally good to them. And that's a key component to understanding and being a good neighbor. How do we know that? We see it in the scriptures. We see it with the story of the good Samaritan. We see it with the, wit the widow at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And we also see it when Jesus came and had to go into the synagogues and proclaim Isaiah 61, saying in his first coming that, we, that he was going to make the blind to see and the lame to walk. It was through those acts of miracles that showed forth his deity. Number five is here. Growing organisms must change to solve problems. The whole gathering of people here chose men who were Greek. They chose these men. They were all Greek. And as they were Greek, you have to understand that they were effective for the kingdom of God. If you want to solve a problem in the church about injustice, and they happen to be Hellenists, you don't want to get a bunch of Jews to fix the problem. Because they're going to lean towards their own doing. They're going to lean towards the majority. They're going to lean towards their customs and traditions rather than open up the door for other peoples, other people groups. And so Stephen, God uses Stephen to speak forth against the Jews in the next chapter. And in chapter 8, we understand after he was martyred and killed and stoned to death, the church scattered and the church expanded from there. And we saw that God used that unfortunate situation to open the doors for the church to expand. And now we see with Philip the same thing. God used Philip to evangelize, to lead others for Samaria. Because in Acts 1.8, we knew that they were to reach Jerusalem and Judea and, and Samaria. Because it was to expand it. But sometimes it comes through hard times and difficulty and trials. Sometimes through uncomfortable decisions, uncomfortable talks, uncomfortable situations. That's when the body of Christ and the gospel spreads. And see, for an organism, we have to understand what an organism is. It's a single cell life form to grow. It needs oxygen and water and food. And when the cell grows, it divides and it forms new cells that are different from the original cells. So in other words, for growth to occur, change will need to occur. When a church changes and grows, then we'll be able to solve problems. I have to read this with you, even for sake of time, just to tell you about Tony Evans and what he's done with his church. There was a situation I have to read to you that helped them as a big church of eight, 9,000 people. He says, an example of how this functions, biblical justice in the midst of church, is illustrated in the life of a man who I called Chris. Chris has stolen $1,500 from his employer and had been caught by the police. The judge was going to lock him up for three years at the cost of taxpayer money of about $18,000 a year. Besides the cost, Chris would be going to prison where he would only learn how to become a better criminal. Along with that, his employer would never re be repaid for the loss. I sent a group of men of our church to judge to the judge, and one said, Your Honor, if you would give Chris back to us, we will assign a man to be responsible for him, to get him a job and garnish his wages to pay back his former employer. The judge was happy to do so. So we placed some men in Chris's life to influence him in the right way, get him a job, garnish his wages, pay back the money he stole, save the taxpayer's money, and held him responsible. Six months later, we took him back to the judge, who was astonished. Later, we got a call from the judge. 
Will you take 20 more like this, please? The church is the place where biblical justice is not only proclaimed, but also produced. Yet because God, God's people have failed to be the church, as the church was designed to function, the society does not see a model of divine justice at work. Therefore, it loses an opportunity to learn how to operate properly. See, this is why it's necessary. We've got to do this. Lastly, the, the word of God and prayer are vital for continued growth. The word of God and prayer. We see in verse 4, but we devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. But then in verse 7, it says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Two words there. One is the first, increased. That the word of God continued to increase. Imperfect tense. The continuous growth falling on good soil. That's what it means. So the number of disciples greatly increased. But the imperfect passive where it says that they multiplied greatly... It's, it's in the passive, so God's at work on the fertile soil. God is at work. So what this is saying is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God in prayer, and dealing with injustice, the church grows. The church flourishes. The church expands. The church changes. The organism grows because we're dedicated and committed to the word of God in prayer. We can all feel guilty right now. Do we pray enough about this? I'm going to say I don't. You can say what you want. I'm going to say it for myself. But the word of God in prayer tells us we need to be more proactive. By doing so in these principles, we can understand that we'll grow as a church, that we'll grow in doing justice. You know, and let me just share a couple more verses before we go to communion Job 29, 12, Job was a man who was defending himself against his three friends. And it was virtuous for a man in the Near Eastern ancient culture to do justice. And as you see this, you see and understand that this is what he did in defending himself about his justice. He said, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I searched out of the cause of him whom I did not know. Here comes another reference. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor in your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall you, your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall speed, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from the midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. Wow. Is it not clearer what God says? One more. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds, but before my eyes, from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. We can't get away from it, my brothers and sisters. It's all over the scriptures. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Then now come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Now we can talk. (laughs) Now we can talk because you're doing justice. Let's talk. Because now forgiveness comes. Though your sins are like scarlet, now they should be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like the wool. The beauty of God. Forgiveness comes in justice, biblical justice. But we must stand Through the church, we must do this, not through political realms. It starts with the church. Whatever your political party is, that's your business. Stand as you may. But Christian comes before your political party. And we need to stand for biblical justice. As we prepare for this time of communion, may we reflect on one thing that we never deserved what we received. If justice was served to us as human beings, if God never opened up his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, which is part of biblical justice, then we would not be here today. And we would not receive his mercy and his grace. And through this, we understand that God was willing to send his son to die in our place, a brutal death. In fact, I want to share with you in Deuteronomy 25, it was a corporal punishment what he received for us. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 through 3. If there is a dispute between men and they come into the court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, judge The judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in the presence, in his presence with the number of stripes in proportion of his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Jesus took on the 40 lashes to his stomach crown was shoved in his head. He was flogged, beaten, brutally beaten like someone who was guilty. But the innocent lamb was brought to the slaughterhouse. His body mangled, could not even see his appearance or recognize him. The blood that was shed was for our redemption. Sitting on a cross, even between two men, one who deserved justice, Both one who said, I deserve justice. Jesus says, you'll enter into paradise with me today. God desires compassion, mercy, forgiveness. But justice says equality will reign. And I I love the beauty of God. He offered us salvation and we didn't deserve it. So we have no right to speak up. We have no right other than, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. As you take a moment, you have your elements in front of you, your cracker and your juice. I want you to take a moment and just pray. Confess your sin. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to change your heart in biblical justice. And ask God to reign in your heart through this time. Let's reflect on the body and the blood.
of Jesus Christ. out there on Facebook, uh, make sure you have your cracker and your juice in front of you. And if there is even someone here who's not sure if they've come to faith in Jesus Christ, let this pass. This is for family business. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 27. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the, new, the cup of the new, new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that together. Father, thank you for reminding us how important this is and how we need so desperately to walk with you. God, thank you for reminding us that biblical justice can be produced in the church when we come before you and listen and not say they're only problems, but there are solutions to the problems because you are the one who can lead us to do so. So, Lord, may we stand upon the word of God and the gospel and biblical justice. May we understand that biblical justice truly matters. And I pray that through it, Lord, we will rest knowing that we can move forward, learning and growing together through all injustices, even in the recent one that we've heard for, for many years, for hundreds of years, but how it's heightened up the racial injustice that still occurs in our midst. Oh, God, I'm just grateful that you're merciful and gracious to us. Help us, Lord, as we look to you. And we thank you in advance to what you're going to do as you move forward in changing our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you out there on Facebook. We'll see you guys very soon. We'll join with you next week at 11 o'clock on Sunday. Please make sure that you join in. Also, um, just keep in mind, thank you for all your giving and your support. We really appreciate all that you're doing. Continue to Tune in with us as we move forward during this time of unrest and uncertainty as we look to the Lord. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon.
for the church here in the building. <laughs> if